Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. It seems like the galaxy is a cold and barren place, but in truth, it's a fertile garden waiting for us to plant it. So today we return to the Generation Ship series to look at what I tend to consider one of the more likely scenarios for colony ships to other solar systems. Under our current understanding of physics, the speed of light limits us to taking many years to get to even the nearest stars, and even getting to a fraction of light speed is quite difficult. This means any pioneers looking to settle the galaxy are going to be old and gray before arriving, or long since dead. As we mentioned back in the first episode, there's essentially five core methods of getting around this issue. One of those is simply to settle new worlds with the descendants of the original crew, the classic generation ship. Another is to freeze the crew and revive them on arrival, what we call a sleeper ship. We also have the seed ship and the data ship routes we discussed last time in Seeding the Stars, and these two have a lot of overlapping concepts. The default seed ship settles worlds by using machines to go there and terraform the world, and potentially even to grow humans and vats from frozen embryos and raise them, while the data ship contemplates a more digital approach, potentially simply bringing uploaded copies of human minds to a new world. Of course the data ship has some overlap with the sleeper ship too, since those uploaded minds can make the journey as archive data essentially asleep for the trip, but they could be running the entire time too, since an uploaded mind isn't at risk of dying of old age, at least not in the conventional sense. However, this extended lifespan is also a key aspect of our fifth type of colony ship, the Methuselah ship, and one of our key topics for today. Such a ship takes its name from Methuselah, the biblical patriarch said to have lived the longest, dying at age 969, and doubly appropriate as he's also the grandfather of Noah, whose famous ark, carrying samples of all life, is the basis for why colony ships are often called interstellar arcs. And grandparents are a big factor in our topic for the day, because an obvious problem with very long-lived people on a ship is that the original crew is not dying of old age, so any children and grandchildren they have on the voyages are not simply replacing them as they do on a classic generation ship. They could of course be told not to reproduce on the voyage, except to replace any losses, and even with extreme life extension there presumably still would be some, but the problem here is that one of the more obvious motives for joining any colony effort to a new world is because you like having kids, especially after the first few dozen times you've colonized new stars, the prestige and risk elements start going away, and we do have many billions of stars presumably needing colonizing in this galaxy. This starts to take us into what we sometimes call our sixth type of ship, the Gardener ship, but as I mentioned last time, it's not so much a new ship type 
as a different approach to colonization utilizing hybrid methods. We could add other types to that basic five too, for instance, we don't know that faster than light travel is impossible, it just looks that way now, and while the whole concept of the five core ship types is about dealing with being stuck going slower than light, FTL does not automatically remove the core problem of very long voyages, and indeed some types would introduce their own logistical issues which we may discuss more later in the series. For that matter, the whole reason you can't go faster than light is because as you get closer and closer to it, it takes more and more energy to speed up any more, and also introduces time dilation. With enough energy you can get arbitrarily close, not just spitting distance but right up close to kissing light speed. If you go fast enough and time slows down enough, the original crew can arrive at their destination without experiencing lots of time. This has its own problems, and we'll probably look at those later in the series too, though again, like with sleeper ships, it's not really a generation ship nor is its usage limited to colony vessels. However, at its core, the Gardner ship is a generation ship, while at the same time, the Methuselah ship is not. And indeed it's the fundamental problem with the Methuselah ship that gives us the Gardner ship concept, or Gardner fleet, which we'll explain in a bit. The Methuselah ship itself is easy enough to explain. We launch an interstellar arc on which the people do not age or do not age much. Of course they are aging, this is not a sleeper ship, they just aren't growing physically old. We've discussed life extension's impact on society in the life extension episode and the technological hurdles to developing it in the science of aging, so we'll mostly skim that here, but some key points need to be raised that are relevant to interstellar arcs, and the first one again is that they are indeed aging. They are not static individuals but potentially unbelievably ancient ones. Age does not always bring wisdom and knowledge, but in general it does, and one of our big concerns with generation ships is how those ships need to contain enough people to retain every important specialization a new world will need, because you can't call home for advice unless you don't mind waiting centuries for a response. A person can pick up a lot of skills in a regular lifetime, especially in a high-tech civilization that needs skills more than labor and whose technology permits a lot of free time to pick those up, so you can imagine how much a person with a very long life might learn. That's also assuming they're just a regular person, and when we're talking Methuselah ships, odds are pretty good that they have access to things like mind augmentation too. This is the other problem with a classic generation ship, you need a lot more people on one because they are spending a large portion of their life learning a skill, and a larger portion of their career once they learn it teaching it to others, and trying to ensure none of those core skills get lost as generations roll by. A Methuselah ship has no such problem, especially if they're only replacing their numbers with new people on rare occasions someone is lost. Contrary to the often proclaimed maxim about it being easier to learn when you're younger, by and large you can pick up new skills way faster as you age, and get more and more related experience to draw on. Indeed one of the biggest bars on learning as you get older is that you rarely have much incentive to do so, 
learning to use a word processor after having mastered a typewriter can seem a bit unnecessary and indeed might slow you down, and learning a typewriter after spending years developing a fast and clean script with a pen or quill might feel likewise. This is a relevant point because one of our big concerns about life extension technology is that it can produce a society that's maybe a bit set in its ways and not really embracing new things, possibly ossifying technologically and socially. However, while that can be problematic back here, at home, it's actually mostly beneficial to a colony ship. This isn't Star Trek. Starships aren't braving the unknown and serving as the sources of a lot of new science. All that's going on back at home where most of the scientists live, and while such ships will have scientists, and they will doubtless do speculation and research, they'll mostly be getting tech updates from back home that are decades if not centuries out of date. If you're 100 light years from home, for context, you'd be hearing about how Eddington had just tested that fellow Einstein's new theory of general relativity and how they have these cool new telephones with rotary dials. You aren't very likely to devote all your time to theorizing and testing that theory when you know that back home, in the year 2019, they've had a whole century to work on the matter and the whole resources of the civilization to assist in that, not just one small, lonely ship. Indeed, considering we're talking about life extension, they'd still have Einstein working on the problem personally. And as we discussed in the arc of a million years, the issue with long voyages isn't just maintaining the ship and the knowledge for centuries of travel, but the same basic mission and goals. Now, nobody is going to live centuries without changes of priority and purpose, but odds are you've got a much slower drift when the crew is still the original crew, not their great-great-great-grandchildren. They still remember Earth, they still have their childhood culture built into them, heck they still have living relatives back home sending them correspondence. Societies on Earth and its colonies probably will not diverge as fast when everyone is living a real long time so it's a lot easier to engage in centuries of travel and centuries of colonization efforts when you've got those kind of lifespans. All of which might make you wonder why early on I said the Methuselah ship has a fundamental problem, since they seem practically perfect for the job compared to our other methods. You don't need as many people because you need fewer folks to maintain your skill sets, less need for wide redundancy because if your ship surgeon dies, odds are several other folks have those skills too, or sufficient related knowledge they can pick it up from archived lessons. A colony ship has no need for a geologist, no geology on board, but obviously needs one on arrival and probably a lot more than one, so that ship needs to carry enough folks educated in or capable of learning that field to ensure they've got it on arrival people who can't really use it or feel useful to their shipmates. Hard to give a portion of your life over to studying a field of science you can't practice, that no one around you really values, and that has a huge number of practitioners centuries ahead of you back home. Hard to recruit and get the best recruits for you to pass your knowledge onto. Not really an issue on a Methuselah ship though. Similarly, they aren't drifting much socially, and there's no retirements or ambitious young new folks shaking up the routine, so the mission should go smoother and is less likely to produce some colony vastly different from the one they left and potentially militantly so. 
there's always a concern with colonies, they might come home for a visit, and you'd rather it was a friendly fleet of tourists and traders, not an armada loaded for bail. So again, what's the fundamental problem here? This method seems to work and seems to work very well, assuming, obviously, that you have access to life extension technology. Fundamentally it's a practicality issue. This method clearly is advantageous, but no society is likely to be stagnant even if long lived, especially one composed of people who want to go found new civilizations, and want to enough that they're willing to basically divorce themselves from their homeland. They probably want to have kids during the trip, and while a very long lifespan would let you convince them to hoard off, the issue is that it's very easy to argue that they should not. And this is where we get into the Gardner ship, because a Methuselah ship doesn't really need to leave Earth carrying a lot of people, it can easily create its colonists on the way there from a small number, something a classic generation ship could do too, but without the loss of skills or culture implied by a small, short-lived initial contingent. So you can send a big ship with a small crew and grow as you go. We have to couple this to a few other things we've noted throughout the series though. First, it's very unlikely any human will ever set foot on another planet without something much better than all modern 3D printers on board, indeed I'd be surprised if anyone even set foot on the moon again without it. Folks going to Mars are going to have some production capacity on that ship, folks going to Alpha Centauri are likely to have automation able to produce anything their ship or colony needs so long as they have the energy and raw materials for it. Realistically, Boeing may be the first few colonies to prove we can do it, interstellar arcs aren't likely to be common until such an ability is on the table, and as we pointed out last time, one of the reasons you don't need to send small, self-replicating ships to other solar systems to do our colonizing is because you can just as easily have them build giant ships in our solar system instead. So space and equipment isn't likely to be a big issue for a realistic colony ship. Even strictly digital ones manned by artificial intelligences or uploaded mines have no reason to go small, you could build billions of ships that each dwarfed our largest supertankers while barely scratching the resources of this solar system, and each one can send back freighters from their destination carrying back raw materials to repay those used in its construction many times over, many billions of times over. So there's no reason to go small out of scarcity of resources, and as we've seen throughout this series, bigger is always better when it comes to colonial ships. Way back in the Life in a Space Colony series we posited a ship, the Unity, that had left on a mission where some of the folks were frozen and some were long lived. We assumed the frozen folks were too, but were people who didn't want to make the whole journey. Indeed we know that some making the journey awake might opt to go on ice during the voyage, temporarily or till they arrived. We also noted that they might have kids, and maybe some would go on ice to make room for them, but odds are, the sheer redundancy of the ship, designed for a long journey without resupply, combined with constant tech updates from Earth, would probably let them carry a lot more people than they set out with as they got those updates and felt more comfortable with the ship not breaking on them. They had a colony plan that called for a certain number of colonists and had all the equipment for that plan, now they have a lot more people 
a century's worth of new technology they've received during the voyage and are already overprepared for safety's sake. They also have a ship that's excellent at recycling and has onboard manufacturing able to produce any component the ship or basic colony needs. They are not a ship with colonists and gear anymore, they are a mobile civilization, and when they arrive someone is bound to point out that they have a fully functional ship that can suck in raw materials and repair and refuel itself and make all the colony gear another world would need and which has more people on it than the colony needs. They could, of course, just do the classic colony concept of having them all descend on their new world. More people and more tech and more supplies is hardly a problem, though the more people part might actually be a limiting factor. You've got people who spent centuries on that trip and are absolutely focused on colonizing that new system. You've got folks who did the trip frozen, or part of the trip, who feel the same, but you've also got folks born en route who only know that ship and their life on it, and others who may have changed their perspective during the trip and now have different ambitions. Indeed you might have people who joined them during the trip, same as you might make room on such a ship by freezing some folks who were a bit bored and happy to go on ice while someone new did their job, they might be going digital instead, stored digitally rather than on ice or just running in a virtual world in parallel to the physical ship. Or faster ships might be catching up with better tech and not needing to carry as much gear or even fuel if they can just slow enough to rendezvous and drop off people. Likewise, you might enlist digital people from back home to sign up during the trip. The ship moves fast, but if we're assuming very high technology you might have folks who are digital minds and are relayed by traveling as transmissions, beamed to the ship only after it safely approaches its destination. You might even wait until your advance probes report back on your destination to request specialists in particular fields. The probes report one of your destination system planets has an interesting type of plant life and requests a few exobotanists who are current on the latest research and similar types of life, and they might enthusiastically make the trip or send a copy to make the trip to study this new life. We also have the Stalazel and Interstellar Laser Highways concept we've discussed before, which might well be getting built by a vanguard just ahead of the main colony ship or colony fleet to slow it down, and follow-up vessels with more colonists might be arriving, relying on that to slow them down and moving far faster as a result. This same platform can easily push the ships back up to speed, not just slow them down, and can let people go home if they want. Interstellar travel isn't automatically a one-way trip when you have very long lifetimes, since unlike even freezing people, these folks can arrive back home having not physically aged much but be greeted by family and friends who stayed home and haven't aged much either. Either way, it gets very likely some of those colonists are going to suggest that after a brief stayover helping get the colony set up, they will move on to another new world, and considering they are restocked on raw materials and have a long voyage ahead of them, they don't need to be too numerous when they leave to arrive in a new system full of new people and new colonial gear. They can move on, planting a seed to grow on each new world they pass, stopping whenever they start getting enough people or low enough on raw materials to be considering a resupply, 
planting a new seed and slowly walking their way out from Earth to the wider galaxy. But this goes a bit further too, because again, they can make any components their ship needs. That's really a necessity for any interstellar colony ship. After all, stuff breaks, and you need a lot of replacement parts to cover centuries of breakage, even ignoring that centuries is a long time to expect replacement parts to last even stored rather than in use. Indeed you'd want to be getting tech upgrades from back home and making and installing them. So if you can replace any part of the ship from raw materials, you can also make a copy of the ship. Such ships aren't just stopping to plant seeds of colonies, they're stopping to grow more of themselves. The galaxy is basically a big disk after all, so ships heading out in straight lines can divide along the way and spread out. Is there a motive for this? Certainly. Imagine you were a lieutenant on board one of these ships for a century. Now you arrive and some of your friends are staying at this new system and some remaining, but the captain probably is staying on that ship. If you want a ship of your own, to get promoted as a war, dividing ships up is probably faster than waiting for people who are biologically immortal to die, or get bored and leave the next colony destination. Same applies for the colonists. Upward mobility is an issue in a long-lived society, and while a new world relieves a lot of that, the new world is likely to be governed by someone pretty old. If you were basically third or fourth in line to be in charge of something, you might decide staying on board for the next stop and being number one is preferable. This is also not likely to be found on behavior either, as that attitude might well have been a big motivator for a lot of people to join the colony mission in the first place. Now all of this works out on paper but does ignore some of the human angles. A ship arriving somewhere with everyone getting off only once, and all together, does not fracture the community. On a Gardner ship, every several decades you stop somewhere and people have to start making hard choices, since some people they know will be staying and others not. I don't want to minimize that at all. You'd have family and friendships cut apart at every stop and you could probably fill the oceans on a new world with all the tears shed in sadness or anger or bittersweet pride as folks went off on their own new path. But this is nothing new to us, people moving and growing up, and until this last century or so, when someone left home, it was very likely, and often more likely than not, that you'd never see them again. I'd know that these were folks who already did that once, leaving Earth in the first place, but many of them would never have been from Earth having been born on the voyage, and speaking from personal experience, doing it once doesn't necessarily make the second time easier. After a decade away at college and then at war, I was very glad to finally go home, and it would take a herd of horses to drag me away again. I don't think it would be any easier or harder for these colonists to say goodbye a second time. Some caveats on that though. First, We already noted that it's not just going to be the crew dividing between staying on the ship and leaving for the newest new world, every so often it will be a new ship too. But in fact it's much more likely to be whole fleets of ships arriving, and likely even building new ones during the flight, and some possibly departing or arriving ahead or behind the rest. Imagine for the moment you were a fleet of a dozen ships, flying together, and one departs almost right away to act as the vanguard at the next system, 
while another stays late to pick up stragglers. Sometimes a ship will get tasked to fly people back home or to the previous system you colonized. Sometimes you build a new one, sometimes three or four break off as a whole new fleet in a different direction. This is easier because there's still a community, but it's a bit more separate. It's also very likely big colony ships would have a lot of semi-autonomous communities in it, more like many towns sharing a region of land than a single big city. That would allow a lot more time for folks to slowly sort and separate themselves into entire communities that would go. There'd still be some separations, but not as many or as sharp overall. They'd still have shared bonds and culture, even ignoring that folks would presumably migrate between those communities too. To a degree, this separation will happen even if all stayed in that one system too. A planet is a big place after all, and a star system is likely to have many of them and minor planets to settle too, and it is logical to settle several places in a system, not just one small initial base on one planet. But that shared culture is a thing to remember, as these fleets plant their seeds on world after world and divide to spread out in a wedge across the galaxy. Those worlds being planted share a lot more in common with each other than two separate colony missions both launched from Earth arriving at neighboring systems, and they'd be close enough to talk without absurdly long delays and to send ships back and forth so you might get some loose-knit interstellar civilizations popping up along wedges spreading out from Earth to the Galactic Rim. There's another aspect to this too. As we've discussed before, while I never figure we'll be short of colonists, especially since we can breed them en route, we do have technological options in play. We shouldn't automatically assume having life extension implies a very transhumanist culture, After all, you could easily have life extension by some simple pill or potion or retrovirus you took that folks might be fine taking even if they were otherwise into techno-primitivism, but it's quite likely they would have a lot of transhumanist tendencies. Such being the case, a person torn between staying with the crew they call brothers and their spouse and their kid planning to join another ship's crew might just do some dividing and copying of their own uploading their mind into multiple bodies with a copy going each way. Obviously some might be okay with this approach and some not, but in a culture focused on increasing their numbers quickly, I'd imagine objections would be minimal since you get to add a person and one with a full complement of skills and experience too, and each such fleet would likely vary in its approach and attitude on this and many other things as they leave Earth and as they splinter off from each other. We've looked at a lot of colony options and have more to come, and each has its pros and cons and would vary in those by what cultures emerge in the future as much as by what technologies emerge, but of all of them, this particular spectrum of colonial options, of galactic gardening as it were, strikes me as the most appealing. Sending out fleets to all the nearest stars who arrive and splinter, some remaining on those worlds, some heading right off to the next, some even heading home on highways of light, somehow seems more like the way we'd choose to go. It doesn't require that all or nothing approach of the classic colony ship, especially when we can dampen the impact of time through extended lifespans for both the traveler and those they left behind, something sleeper ships or time dilation only offers us half of. 
So those are Gardner ships, and we discuss the idea more, along with a lot of the actual colonization methods at the planets they visit, in the Life in a Space Colony series, so you can check that out for more discussion of the topic. It's also where the Unity comes from, the spaceship we reference in a lot of episodes and channel discussion, as that was the ship we spent our time on in that series. I mentioned during the episode that one advantage of Methuselah ships is that with very long lifetimes people can acquire a lot of skills, and that's something we already see nowadays, but it can be inconvenient and expensive to go off to college or a workshop every time you want to pick up any new skill. We're seeing a lot of advances in education in terms of convenience and improved presentation, but it's not a thing of the distant future, and we already have organizations like Skillshare leading the way and letting you pick up useful skills, at your own pace and in the comfort of your own home. They are an online community with over 20,000 courses on everything from technical topics like virtual reality, graphic design, and computer programming to accounting or culinary arts. If you want to improve your skills, unlock new opportunities, and do the work you love, you can get a premium membership and have unlimited access to classes on those topics and many more. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. To sign up, go to skl.sh Isaac7. Again, Go to skl.sh slash Isaac7 to get two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for free. Act now for the special offer and start learning today. Next week's episode is on Valentine's Day, so I thought we'd celebrate the occasion with a discussion of the future of dating and relationships, both the good and the bad, in Happily Ever After. The week after that, We'll return to the Earth 2.0 series to discuss cloud cities and look at possible human habitats sitting high among the cloud tops of mountains or even floating in the sky, in cloud cities. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed this episode, please like it and share it with others. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.